Welcome to the Popular Pig Podcast, a convenient place where you can stay up to date on what's popular in the swine industry. By listening to Popular Pig, you will receive invaluable information on the latest trends, news, and research from various experts who guide the global pork industry. Popular Pig is brought to you by SwineTech, the award-winning creators of SmartGuard and PigFlow. To learn how PigFlow can help you streamline your workforce and reduce piglet and sow deaths, visit swinetechnologies.com. Popular Pig is also made possible by Johnsonville Foods, Swine Robotics, SwineWeb.com, and Innovative Heating, the manufacturers of Hog Hearth. Welcome to the Popular Pig Podcast. My name is Matthew Rhoda, your host for today's episode. Today, we're talking with Dr. Chad Stahl, who's a global food animal consultant and meat scientist. Thanks for joining us today, Chad. Morning, Matthew. How are you? Doing great. I'm excited to talk to you about global and domestic demand of pork and consumption and everything that rolls into that. We've had a lot of great consumptions around the various impact that uh, things can have on that and, and look forward to diving into that with you. Absolutely. If we could just start off by having you talk about your background and how you got involved with the swine industry, that'd be great. So my background's rather interesting. I grew up on a small farm in Indiana, two parents that were both uh, teachers and, and, and coaches. And um, along the way, uh, some neighbors and some friends got both myself and my sister involved with 4-H. And over the course of of my tenure in 4-H, it uh, certainly piqued my interest in uh, animal agriculture and the swine industry. Um, So my parents both went to Indiana University, but I took a different path and went to Purdue University to study animal science um, for four years. And then I had a great opportunity to move from Purdue to the University of Missouri and follow uh, Dr. Eric Berg who was also at Purdue at the time I was there, um, to be one of his first graduate students and and work alongside him in terms of better understanding not only meat science, but more specifically how animal handling, uh, animal welfare, nutrition, genetics, all of those subtle nuances play a role in uh, muscle metabolism and meat science. Uh, Following my graduation uh, with my PhD in meat science in 04, I uh, moved to Northwest Iowa and began a consulting firm. I consulted for several years and uh, now at uh, it's been since 04 since I started that business and I've had two jobs in between, but uh, we travel all over Asia, quite frankly, a lot of work in China and in Japan. Uh, I've been lucky enough to do research in Germany, France, and Spain. And then also I've been able to do quite a bit of work in Canada, as well as here in the U.S. and Mexico. So I've been able to see a lot of meat from a lot of different countries and better understand what drives demand and what consumers want and how those differences are are rather unique across the board. So that's a little bit about my background. So as a State of the Union kind of on meat consumption on a global standpoint, uh, before we kind of dive into things, which hope to dive in from kind of beginning to end, starting with genetics and ending with the consumer. Mm -hmm. When you look at the global consumption of pork versus our domestic consumption of pork, are there any things that stand out or jump out as just obvious differentiators? Well, certainly um, when we talk about China, uh, pork is one of 
uh, certainly the protein of choice for China. And they've had their struggles with African swine fever and with some other uh, diseases there that have kind of decimated their their system. But there's still a, a, a huge demand for pork, especially during their Chinese New Year and the holidays. So pork will always be a number one staple for China, in my, in my opinion. And what's fascinating about China is, is that uh, I started working with a company there five or six years ago, and um, we helped build some state-of-the-art uh, packing facilities that uh, were, quite frankly, almost fully automated and, and was some of the best uh, packing facilities that I'd seen in that country. Uh, yet um, the notion of vacuum packaging, um, we, we had a vacuum packager at that facility, and it was never used in the five years that I, I worked there. And that's because uh, you have open markets and different marketing strategies and, and, and folks, quite frankly, that don't have large refrigerators and freezers. So they purchase their meat the morning and they eat that product in, in the evening. And so it's quite a bit different in terms of seeing and understanding how it's, how it's fabricated, um, how it is packaged, how it is sold, how it is consumed. Um, and, and quite frankly, it's, it's so different than anything that we see here, but uh, different is not necessarily anything other than it's, it's just very helpful to understand that. And then you go to Japan, which is quite a bit different than I work with uh, Japanese customers that really uh, drive for marbling and, and color and pH and yields and, and high end products where they're bringing in some of the best genetics in the world to try to improve those uh, eating qualities. And so their focus is a little bit different um, today than it might be in China. Although China is really starting to push forward, at least the contingencies that I work with, to move towards not only yield and pounds of product, but product that uh, can be differentiated at a store and that consumers will want um, and that will help generate repeat purchases. So quite interesting. And then in Europe, Europe is different because we have intact bores. Uh, meat quality is not necessarily a primary driver like it would be here in the United States or, or Japan. Um, so the European piece is quite a bit different when you start to analyze their systems and their their uh, their methodology and the way they fabricate and package product. And, you know, then if you move down to Mexico and in Mexico, color is very important. And I work with a lot of folks that actually are starting to look into uh, ways in which they can improve their color, marbling, water holding capacity, and then sell product to Asia, uh, both China and Japan. So I think everywhere I go, there is an interest in improving meat quality and, and an interest in improving the, the eating experience for the consumer and the intent for repeat purchases. But where they are in terms of, of that driver and how serious they are about it may be a little bit different from one region to another. Does that make sense? No, that makes plenty of sense. So I guess mm -hmm. as a consumer here in the U.S., especially in Iowa, pork is, uh, is is everywhere. When you go inside the store, though, there isn't a whole lot of differentiation. And, and you're saying and there's other countries where there's the marbling and uh, select varieties that you kind of see with beef here in the U.S.? Well, um, for example, in Japan, they'll sell products based not only on the quality of the product using some of the aforementioned um, characteristics that we generally associate with a good eating experience, color, um, marbling, and um, just uh, the way they package it. But 
they're breed specific or quality specific. And so you can identify multiple um, packages that are quite different in terms of their appearance and also in terms of their price, right? You, you have the Berkshire, the Kuroboda pork uh, over there that can fetch a higher price than maybe a commodity pork. But you also have a lot of folks in Japan that are, are, are using the Duroc, which is also a breed that um, is known for um, meat quality traits. And so you'll see a lot of that um, in Japan. Uh, you'll see some of that actually in China from what I've seen. But um, you don't see as much of that maybe here in the United States in the larger grocers, right? And that's what you're, I think, getting to is that um, in the larger grocers, in fresh pork in general, you see a litany of packages, but um, not many in the larger stores that are differentiated by breed, right, or by meat quality, or and then a value associated with said product. Um, you do gotcha. find that at some of these niche stores, right? And you do find that at some of the smaller stores that are, are geared towards providing consumers options that are a little bit more tailored towards whether it's outside raised, antibiotic free, um, uh, breed specific, um, uh, vegetarian diet, all of those types of things. And, and, uh, you know, I think everybody that would listen to this would know who I'm speaking of without me really saying those companies, but that's that's different than what we would consider commodity pork. Yeah, gotcha. Yeah, we actually did a podcast with a couple of individuals out of Canada that raised Cooney Coonies and uh, Red Manganitas, and they were talking about the various differences between the the, the growing cycle and, and the taste of the pork, and, and that was pretty fascinating. And that kind of brings us to there's a role of genetics, nutrition, welfare, the National Pork Board collaboration as an industry, uh, packers' involvement, and the consumer's willingness to pay and interest in the actual product. And, and that really very well spells out the lifespan of a pig, right? It Absolutely. all starts with breeding. It all finishes with the consumer. I'd like to walk through that and start with genetics and talk about what is the role of genetics in finding uh, what you call it, the, the center of the plate relevance uh, for pork. Right. So the center of the plate relevance is important to me because pork is a, is a protein that's very versatile, but when cooked properly, if in fact it's a high quality cut of meat, should be able to compete holidays and at, at, at specific events with, with, quite frankly, any protein that you could, uh, you could select. So from a genetic perspective, it's quite interesting because the genetics companies of, uh, of the world do a very, very nice job of tailoring their specific lines to specific needs, right? And so right now, with prices of, of, of uh, feed being increased and, uh, and uh, the notion that pigs need to be efficient and we need to be able to make money raising said animals, uh, a lot of genetic companies are focused on not only can a sow lay down and have a quality litter of piglets that will survive with low morbidity and mortality, right? Um, but then they also have, those same pigs have to be able to grow uh, and excel in a system. And they need to be able to convert feed, which is the singular most expensive part of raising that animal, uh, at a rate that, quite frankly, uh, allows the producer to be competitive, right? And I think I think we're doing a nice job of that as an industry. But 
the one thing that I, I struggle with is is that we have some uh, genetics companies that uh, have moved a focus to more of the Duroc pig because of its um, association with the meat quality piece. And we have uh, some genetic companies that will actually, um, and I applaud them, they will measure um, consistently meat quality traits at a packing plant. Uh, the producers may not get paid for it, and I understand that, but I still think it's important that we understand um, that we're raising pork. I mean, we are pig producers in, in yeah. a sense that we're raising pigs in the barns, but the ultimate goal is to provide a high-quality eating experience and a safe eating experience for the consumer. Um, and we, we always need to remind ourselves of that. So the genetic companies that are moving forward and actually adding um, specific phenotypes for meat quality uh, into their indexes or at least are measuring um, traits at the packing facilities and, and, and understanding how their lines perform, uh, I applaud those folks because we may not find ourselves in a situation where producers are getting paid for meat quality today, but um, you never know what's coming around the corner. And the other thing is, is the only way we stay in business is if people want to eat the product that we manufacture, right? For so sure. I think geneticists have a huge role in, 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 in providing the producer with something that they can successfully raise and, and, and generate an income on. But uh, they also have a big role in understanding that the pork that the pigs that are in that barn need to make pork that people want to eat again and again, not just once and then move push it away because it was a bad eating experience. We need to generate more um, interest, especially with the younger populations where uh, microwave and instant pot and, 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 and the quick and easy ways in which we, we now use and cook food. We, we need to find ways where these younger generation of kids are interested in, quite frankly, a really nice cut of pork cooked to 145 with a three-minute rest, and it's a great eating experience. It doesn't take that long on the grill to do, and and a young family can enjoy it for not a lot of money and a really great eating experience. So we need to get more people involved in learning how to cook and and also just how to select their product. But back to the genetics piece. I think the folks that are, are are measuring traits and or adding those to the index are the ones that maybe not short term, but long term will be ahead of the game in terms of just on a global scale as people start to realize that pork can be competitive, but it also has to taste good, right? Yeah, no, I like you bringing up the whole pork versus pig industry because it, it is the pork industry. It's not the pig industry. It is the National Pork Board, not the National Pig Board, and it's National Pork Producers Council, not the National Pig Producers Council. We often get so tunnel visioned on the pig that we sometimes forget about the whole goal is to provide the consumer with that great eating experience so that we can drive up the value of the product and therefore grow domestic demand against what really is our competitors. And that's other forms of protein. Um, when we Absolutely look at nutritionists, right. they, they can, they're kind of a, they can kind of be a best friend to both the producer and the consumer. Can you talk through that? What is, what, what yeah, might well, that mean? For, for me, when I, when I say things like that, what I mean is, is that, okay, so we just spoke about genetics and we just spoke about input costs and we spoke about the cost of feed and how I need a pig to be able to grow uh, and thrive in a system. And I need that pig to, to certainly be able to utilize feed and 
the feed ingredients as best they can for a lot of different reasons. One, because it uh, saves money in terms of a pig that's efficient, but two, people speak of the carbon footprint and, and the lack of, man, you know, the manure and things along those lines. So that's, it's important. But from a nutritionist standpoint, certainly if you had a barn full of pigs and you didn't know exactly how to feed them, say the genetics company didn't have a good guideline on how to feed um, their barrows or their gilts, or maybe they didn't have a good feed feeding um, manual in terms of how their boar might fit on a competitor's female, right? Nutritionists can come in and actually, you know, whether or not they're nutritionists that are consultants, um, certainly there are consultants that are very, very good, or faculty members at universities. I think, and this gets to a point we'll talk about later, I think that producers and consumers fail to realize that land-grant institutions and, and institutions in general that have faculty on staff are available if you have questions or concerns and need an expert uh, to at least lead you down the right path. And so as I'm thinking about it, I would anybody that listens to this, if they have a question or a concern or they would like to know a little bit more about nutrition or genetics or quite frankly, meat science, you have some of the best experts in the world sitting in universities in your specific state that would love to help um, talk through those things. So don't forget that that's an amazing resource that may be underutilized, right? And then back, sure. to the mean, they would. Piece, back to the nutrition piece, whether it's distiller's grains or it's not distiller's grains, whether it's amino acid manipulation, whether it's fatty acid manipulation, uh, whether it's... Um, Subtle nuances with, uh, you know, some folks will feed, you know, different ingredients for different flavor profiles. Um, there's a lot that goes into um, formulating a diet. And some of the best nutritionists in the world will understand that you can formulate a diet, but the diet's only as good as the ingredients that you're utilizing, right? So working with, with uh, nutritionists to better understand the quality of the ingredients you're using, um, testing those ingredients, maybe for mycotoxins and things along those lines, and really being cognizant of the fact that what you feed your pig is very, very important, right? And then on the other end, too, on the nutrition side, as it impacts consumers, consumers, um, you know, tenderness, juiciness, flavor profiles, heart-healthy fats, right? People will feed um, different types of fatty acids to, to then sell product uh, that can be labeled as heart-healthy. Um, so I really think that the nutritionists uh, are important. And this jumps to a different caveat that I hadn't really thought of. But when we talk about nutritionists in this sense, we're talking about nutritionists at the farm level, like swine nutritionists, right? Yes. But what about nutritionists at the human level in terms of um, nutritionists that work with different boards and, and funding bodies? And, and, and with folks to understand portion sizes, but also the value in eating uh, pork and how it can be incorporated into your diet as a means of having, quite frankly, a, a really high quality piece of protein that's lean and fits um, whatever you need at whatever age you are. So when we say nutritionists, maybe we should say nutritionists at the farm level, but also nutritionists that are out there um, that know and understand that pork can be included in and a diet and, and be utilized and, and quite frankly, a heart healthy type situation, right? 
Sure. And probably in a variety of ways, because from different types of pork, from different genetic lines, there's probably different benefits for different people, different ages and different situations. So just understanding the different types of pork probably could add a lot of variety and, and benefits to certain individuals' diets. Yes, I think so. And I think this comes back to training and education, right? So we as an industry, you, I, about anyone that I know loves the opportunity to engage um, in conversations with a consumer about a litany of things, depending on the questions they ask. But I still think that we've not done um, as an industry a great job of not only telling our story and explaining everything from foot to fork in terms of how how we get there, how it's done, how an animal is fed, the animal welfare uh, work that we put in to ensure that these animals are raised humanely and have, quite frankly, the best life they can, right? Um, but then also, um, when these people are seeing pork in, a, in a, either a large chain store where it may be one or two brands or a smaller store where there may be 10, 12 brands of pork, right? Either way, I think consumers need to better understand what they're looking for uh, and, and what it means. And then also how to bring it home and safely um, maybe cut it into uh, portions and or cook it the proper way. So I was lucky enough to be involved with the National Pork Board years ago with the project where we um, looked at decreasing the degree of doneness in pork to 145 with a three minute hold. And, and when you do that, when I serve folks pork, even today that's cooked that way, they rave about how amazing it is. And they wonder why they were never, never knew that, um, that, they could cook it to 145. Now, some are still hesitant because it's pink, but quite <laughs> frankly, it's very, very safe. And if more people knew that you could cook it to 145 on a three-minute hold, I think we really could increase the amount of repeat purchases from consumers and get a better share of the center of the plate, right? Because in the past, um, if you're competing against beef, I understand there's more fat and there's more flavor and, and, and let's say a prime steak, but you know, people can cook beef medium well, all the way down to to rare, and and I pref prefer my medium rare. I don't know about you, but um, if pork was consistently 160, 165, and they're overcooking it, they were never going to have the experience that they would have with beef, having been able to cook that to uh, 145 degrees. So, proper training of these folks in terms of what to look for. Um, that's specific to their diet and their their wants and needs, right? And Correct. then also how to how to cook it um, properly to ensure that you have a good eating experience. And I think we all need to do a better job of, of teaching these folks. But if you teach three people and one of those three people teaches someone else, it's kind of a chain of events where families start to learn and families speak to other family members or they go to church or they go here or there or wherever and and uh, my hope is, is that we can reach a decent amount of people. Like, for example, this past winter, you know, you could buy a pork loin quite inexpensively. I think some of our whole pork loins were like $1.30 a pound, right? Yeah, yeah. It was so cheap. I think we actually, you get a whole, yeah, five pound pork loin for five bucks. Really? Yes. I didn't yeah, see we those, stocked but, the freezer. Yeah. So what do I do? I I know how to use a knife. Somebody taught me how to use a knife. I bring it home. I open the bag. I let it rest. And then I portion it out into chops and some others into roasts and, and back package them and throw them in the freezer, right? 
And I, I, I'm, I'm smiling the whole time because all I have to do is open the vacuum package bag, um, cut chops, right. And roast vacuum package them and put them in the fridge for, for a later date. And I saved a lot of money and I have exactly what I want in terms of how they were cut up. But I would say most folks, especially in and around where I live now, uh, passed by those lines because they didn't, didn't feel comfortable or didn't know what to do with those. And so for me, again, it's back to you and myself and others. Um, how do you reach out to these folks and say, listen, if you're on a limited income or quite frankly, you just like pork wines, right? Um, don't be hesitant to come home and take a knife and make them into chops and roasts and be able to have, you know, multiple uh, eating experiences out of something that you just said you saw something for $5, right? Um, yeah. And if you think about it that way and they cook it correctly and they select the loin the right way, those are a lot of good eating experience that will drive back consumer demand. And there's I so much versatility. I mean, you can inject so the loins. You oh, can do absolutely. so much. Well, and you think about it. I mean, the, the tenderloin cooked 145 is amazing, right? But then sometimes people will see the Boston butt and it it's a big old hunk of meat and it's vacuum packaged and and they don't really know what to do with it. There's two things, right? I mean, one, if you have if you're at a store where there's a butcher, uh, most likely you could take that up and say, hey, can you cut this into steaks? And quite in my opinion, the the blade steak is one of the best cuts on 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 a pork carcass. And so they could cut those into steaks that you could grill, right? Or you could do that at home, or you could just simply bring it home. And there's multiple ways in which you can go to different sites that are available um, throughout all over the internet about how to cook, you know, with this instant pot thing, it's fascinating. So I always grew up with the old style crock pot and finally I got an instant pot type situation. <laughs> and, you know, it's nice because now I can, in an hour and a half, I can do something that would have taken eight hours you know, on a Sunday. Right. But what it's doing is, is it's new and like these air fryers, right. That's the new fad is air fryers. I don't have one. I don't know if you have one, but um, when there are products like that that are launched, the fascinating thing about for me is, is that not necessarily the technology, but everybody starts going to the internet to look for recipes Yes, for an instant pot, right? So what's the recipe for the instant pot? Because all I have is my mom's old, you know, crock pot. And that is an opportunity for the pork industry to say, hey, if there's a lot of traffic coming through with this air fryer or the Instant Pot or any other new technology, the green egg, right, grills, the Traeger grills, where they can link um, recipes that uh, come from not only just the loin, but from other pieces and parts of, of the carcass, I think that's that's a good opportunity. The other thing is, is we've talked about the loin and we've talked about um, the tenderloin, and we've talked about the butt, but um, I don't know if very many people have ever had uncured belly that they grill. Um, that's a amazing eating experience, um, but people might not think of of the belly as anything other than bacon, right? Yeah, it just doesn't come to mind, and and it's an it's an incredible thing you brought up there because as an industry, I'm going to uh, talk pork board here a second here, pork producers council, or just the industry as in general. Uh, there's a lot of money spent on a lot of different initiatives. But if I was to go search recipes for pork on Instapot, which is yeah, like the thing right now, mm -hmm. I'm not going to get any ad from the National Pork Board driving me to the product. Like I feel like there's just 
a lack of involvement with the consumer and marketing the consumer. And it's so much of a back and forth between how do we raise pigs? How do we raise pigs? How do we raise pigs? How do we speak on your behalf of raising pigs? And there's just such an underwhelming involvement of how do we get the consumer to better understand and better appreciate how great pork is? So I'll interject here a little bit and play devil's advocate. So I, you know, YouTube, the pork board's done a really nice job of, of um, getting ads on YouTube. But, you know, I may be watching a YouTube video on sports cars and then it will go to a, a pork ad. And I, I know that they're reaching out to that collective group. And I know that they've worked with, like, I believe Guy Fieri, but I know that there's chefs and things where they work with as well. Um, so I would say that they're they're trying to identify ways to increase um, consumption. I, I'll disagree with you there, but what I would say is, is that um, it's, a, it's a tough deal, right? How, how, I don't know if an ad in and of itself can stimulate interest because because we both know that pork is available in a store right so the question for me is is how do you generate interest beyond just commercials or or youtube videos or things because that gets in front of folks right and they see that stuff but at the same time one of the questions that i have and they i'm sure pork has got a ton of information on this and i would suggest that people that uh, listen to this podcast go to their website because they do have a litany of information. And I think now just recently pork.org has its own separate uh, website from porkcheckoff.org. So porkcheckoff.org is more um, the R and D piece, I think, right. The more where I go, but I think pork.org now just recently has the recipes and has those types of things. The other thing is, is that, um, you know, I have a website and um, maybe guys like me, and you have this, should work with Pork Board and say, hey, is it all right if I put um, your logo on my website with a link to go to porkcheckoff.org or pork.org, right? And so we all kind of work together. The other thing, though, is is with, with advertising that's difficult for me is, is that if my niece or nephew see a commercial like that, they're not buying the product, right? So they may see it, but nothing may come of it. So that's the difficult part is how do you market it to the individuals that are making the purchase decisions in the grocery store, right? And then maybe, and maybe it's the grocery store that needs to do a better job. Back in the day, grocery stores had big flyers and posters that said, here's where your meat, remember those? Here's where your meat comes from. And you'd look yes. at a beef cow or you'd look at a pig and it would say the butt and the picnic, right? And, and there would be flyers next to the meat. Here's how to cook your meat. Or there'd be, There'd be, and you see a lot of that in Asia, actually, where it will say cook to 145. And so maybe we collectively work with grocers and, and co-packs and places like that to say, is there a way to, okay, we we did what we could and we did our due diligence to get the consumer into the grocery store, right? But right. then you and I, other boards, other groups can't, still can't get them force them to, to purchase pork over another protein, right? But, you know, maybe working with some of these um, uh, grocers uh, to, to illustrate the differences in quality, what quality is, where the meat comes from, and make folks a little less hesitant to buy some of those, those bigger primals, maybe that's an answer, right? So 
all of the marketing the pork board does, all of the stuff that your state groups do, right, can only get them into the Dover, right? Correct. Uh, and so how can we, and quite, quite frankly, those entities may be working with grocers right now. I'm sure they are. But that's the kind of stuff that I think is next level for us. I mean, the Internet is big. Uh, and I know they're working to do that, but but um, I have not walked into a major grocer and seen a bunch of information that kind of jumped off the page, if you will, that said buy pork and here's how you cook pork and and um, pictures of what to look for for pork, right? Um, yeah. And quite frankly, any protein. So um, I don't know, and I don't know where we're going to go. And like you said, um, less and less. Uh, pork is available now as fresh pork. We're getting so many different items that are ground, right? Further processed, smoked, you know, shaved, the whole, the whole shebang, right? Yeah. So to take, to take this a little bit further before I, we kind of talk about Packer involvement and then wrap things up mm -hmm. is when I go to a restaurant and I want to order pork, it's mm -hmm. a $25 chop. Okay. There's not a lot of cheap options for me to try pork like there is on chicken and beef. Yep. I go fast food. There's no pork anywhere unless it's bacon added to whatever sandwich I'm having. Mm -hmm. it, is there an opportunity in those areas that you see? Or is that something that maybe we just haven't have it touched or the door's well, closed? It's interesting. You know, at one point in time, I always thought that uh, it would be neat to find a way to get ground pork into the restaurant chains. because. Quite frankly, one of my favorite sandwiches ever is just a pork patty with a piece of cheese on it at the state fair, right? Um, so good. But um, I, I, I know that that's been tried and, um, and uh, not been successful, and I don't know necessarily the hows and whys. I think what's unique about pork is that you've got different muscle fiber types, and, and so when you start to grind pork and it comes from different muscle fibers or different muscles in general. Maybe it's a consistency thing. And, and the biggest piece about fresh pork that, that uh, we need to really work on is exactly what I just said, inconsistency, right? So some of the work, uh, really, really good work that David Newman had done, Dr. David Newman, uh, on behalf of the National Pork Board in, in 2018 was he looked, he quite frankly did an, an audit of, of center cut pork chops um, from all over the United States. And um, what he found was that pork is still highly variable and the color and the marbling scores are not near where most of us would like to see them, right? Like, you know, So we need to improve the color and the marbling scores of the pork that we sell. I'm sure we need to improve or at least maintain the pH's water-only capacity of the pork that we sell. But what we also need to do is eliminate or try better to eliminate the variation between and within pork, or find a way someone suggested maybe uh, work with um, some of the grocers and restaurateurs in terms of when you display the product, you display it kind of predicated on, on color. So you don't have a color score of one and a half or a two right next to a color score of four. So people look at it and say, well, why is that pale and why is that dark, right? Yeah. And, and you know, pale pork is a problem, right? Because generally speaking, it, it usually is associated with a poor eating spot experience for a litany of reasons. But, you know, at the same time, I want my, the people I work with um, and speak to, 
you know, I want a color score of three or better. Um, but people, when the color scores are three or a four, then I get questions about, is it old, right? Or is it from an older animal? And that's, again, drives back home the things we were talking about 20 minutes ago. We need to do a better job of just educating these folks to understand what they're looking for, right? For sure. And, and, and in terms of pork chops in a restaurant, you are correct. Uh, some of the most expensive pork chops I've had were quite good, but only because I made sure they cooked them to 145 instead of 160. Chefs are starting to do a better job of that, or at least asking uh, consumers how they would like it cooked, right? And 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 they're really, really good. Um, you get your ribs, right? But you, you smoke ribs and it is what it is. Um, there are certain cuts of pork, uh, peak meat, actually jowl steaks, pork tenderloins. Um, now you're starting to see some neat stuff where they actually use um, uh, radius and ulna, I believe. So it's like a pork wing. Have you seen those? Yes. Yeah. Pig wings. Oh, oh my goodness. Those They're so I, freaking good. I was, and, yes. Uh, I was asked if I was on an island alone and I can only have one food the uh, rest of my life. It was pig wings. You know, and the thing is, is that I, at the World Pork Expo a few years ago, I don't know who did it, but um, Cable they had those, it was Cable Bay. And they did a really nice job and people lost their minds. But then everybody says, well, out of a whole pig, you only get two. And I, my comment was, well, out of a whole chicken, you only get two wings, right? <laughs> it's um, That's not an argument to make. The argument to make is, is can you use that? I mean, pork asobuco uh, is an amazing uh, item that I don't see much of, but People are afraid of that stuff too, Matthew. So they're used to pork loins, um, but pork tenderloin or, uh, you know, uh, a blade steak or peak meat or, or, you know, those types of things. I think, I think people are a little hesitant. Asobuco, people wouldn't even hardly know really what that is. But, you know, if you get them to try it and it's cooked right, um, it can be life-changing, right? And then it's word of mouth again as to you need to go here and try this that's unique and it's different. But it allows us to actually cook and and serve folks parts of the pig beyond just the belly, the ham, and the loin, right? We haven't talked about ham much at all. And, you know, we go through Easter and a lot of hams are consumed. But in the end, uh, I think some of those newer subtle Cuts of meat might be a way to increase pork on the on the menu, right? I I've not been to a restaurant in probably the last five years that's offered a pork burger on their menu. Have you? No, never, never seen a pork burger. And um, you know, some of the store grocery stores around here will sell them, but it's also sad because I'll see hamburgers and the patties are almost all gone, and the pork burgers almost look dry because they've sat there for a few days. Um, but pork burger is cheaper and i think is quite flavorful and uh, for me it's it's the go-to and i wish more people would be okay with that and maybe someday they will be and it's our job to to do that right yeah but, it is um, and, and i guess to wrap things up to let everybody listening know there's most likely going to be a follow-on series here that talks about industry collaboration packer involvement and kind of get a little bit deeper into some of the things that we've been discussing but if you wouldn't mind sharing a, a golden nugget with all of our listeners that 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 you've learned in your life, you've come across that that you'd like to share, that'd be great. Golden nugget. Oh gosh, I think I think we already hit on that. I think the golden nugget is the aha moment when we realize that um, in the end we're raising pork, and um, 
everything that we do from genetics, nutrition, animal handling and welfare, the environment, right? Uh, the harvest process, um, uh, the packaging process, and then the presentation of the pork um, is, is critical, right? And one misstep in any of those can ruin the end product, right? So right. for me, we are collectively a group that no one can do it alone, right? Like, I think I said something to you about we all should be in the business of doing a better job promoting our own business, right? And so um, we need to understand that it can't be done by just the geneticist or just the nutritionist or just the producer or just the packer or just the meat scientist or just the, the, the grocer or just the restaurant. We're a whole team, right? And we're only as good as our weakest link. And so I think we need to do a better job working together instead of separately, right? Um, because if we strengthen those weakest links, wherever they may be, ultimately we're presenting the consumer with the best quality product we can. And if we do that and we do it consistently, I think we'll, we'll find that pork can, in fact, climb back up and into the center of plate discussion at, 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 at birthdays and events and anniversaries and holidays, right? So I think that's the golden nugget is we need to do a better job working collectively instead of independently to, to improve what the consumer um, is presented at the store and, and or at the restaurant. Fair enough. Fair. And Ted, thank you for joining the Popular Pig Podcast. It's been a real pleasure to talk about pork with you. Yeah, it was fun. Really fun. I look forward to doing it again. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Popular Pig. We aspire to learn and grow together through the experience and wisdom shared by our esteemed guests. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends and colleagues within the swine industry. For more information, please go to popularpig.com to receive updates when new episodes are available. Popular Pig is brought to you by SwineTech, the award-winning creators of SmartGuard and PigFlow. To learn how PigFlow can help you streamline your workforce and reduce piglet and sow deaths, visit swinetechnologies.com.